Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 12. We're going to continue on in our study this morning through the Gospel of John. We've started at the beginning of the year, just verse by verse by verse by verse by verse, and now we've arrived at John chapter 12. Remember, if you have no idea where John 12 is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. You go to the New Testament, you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, and then you want to look for the big number 12. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. A lot of times it's up there at the top of your Bible. Find John 12, and then we're going to start in little verse number 20, so that'll, you'll find where we are this morning. And as you're opening up and turning to John chapter 12, starting in verse 20, I want to tell you a story. Uh, back on February the 8th of 1970, a church service of the Garden Grove Community Church was broadcast on TV in the Irvine, California area for the first time. And over the decades, the weekly broadcast of the church grew and they eventually moved into a bigger church building because people came in to check it out in person. They had heard about it on TV and heard it on the radio or whatever. And then they decided, hey, we need to go check that place out. Well, they needed to build a bigger building. And eventually they would move into a multi-million dollar church building that became iconic in the world of Christian TV programs, especially in the like, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. And that building was known as the Crystal Cathedral. For 51 straight years and continuing on until this very day, I checked last week, the weekly broadcast known as the Hour of Power has aired approximately 2,700 episodes and counting. It's a lot. The staying power of this program has been impressive, even though what is taught is not all that impressive, if I have to be honest. Its founder, Robert Schuller Sr., emphasized what he believed are the positive aspects of the Christian faith. And so he deliberately avoided condemning people for sin or talking about anything that would make people uncomfortable. He left the Reformed Church in America roots in the dust very quickly, which is where he actually started. That, that, that program was started in a Reformed Church in North America, and they quickly left it. But you think about that popular broadcast that never talked about anything related really to like sin and suffering and death, you know, the hard stuff of life. I want to call your attention to another quote-unquote hour of power that Jesus himself mentioned. See what I did there? We're going to look at this other hour of power. We've been marching ever closer to the cross, and John has mentioned that Jesus' hour had not yet come. We heard about that. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And last week, we saw the exasperation of the Pharisees as they watched people begin to follow Jesus. And you see that in verse 19 of chapter 12. Verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And we said, that gives us great hope. We're glad that the world has gone after Jesus and continues to go. You can feel the exasperation of the Pharisees as the king was proclaimed as he entered into Jerusalem in what's known as the triumphal entry. Well, this morning, just like last week he was proclaimed, we'll see that king being pursued by, by many as Jesus' notoriety grew. But instead of only speaking on, about only positive things and then going to raise funds to build a larger, larger auditorium for people to come hear him, Jesus spoke about suffering death and the way to truly follow him. And so let's find out what he said. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, starting in verse 20 through verse 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. 
So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've not left us alone to figure life out on our own. You've given us your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words and apply them to our hearts, O Lord. Lord, unless you speak and unless you move, nothing of significance is going to be done this morning. So, Holy Spirit, please come. Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, for your gospel. We thank you. Uh, For Christ, we thank you for all that you have done, and remind us of that this morning. These things we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. About a month ago, a really special baseball game was played, August the 12th to be exact, and it was played in Dyersville, Iowa, between the Chicago White Sox and the New York Yankees. Just a really special, unique game. Now, you know, we're in the midst of the baseball season, and so it seems like there's a game on literally every five minutes, but this one was really unique. This one was really distinct. And you may have noticed that neither of those teams, the Chicago White Sox or the New York Yankees, have any affiliation with Iowa. But what they do all have and what those players all had was a shared nostalgia for baseball being played in cornfields. Why? The game that was played on this particular day was played on the original set of the 1989 baseball movie, The Field of Dreams. And the outfield was set in a cornfield. So you had the original set, and then they had this whole other baseball diamond, baseball stadium that was built right next to it. And the outfield, literally over the fence, was large corn stalks. And so when a player would hit a home run, which happened a lot in this game, you would hear the announcer say, and that one's now going into the corn. It was awesome. It was an awesome game. It was an amazing game to watch. It was so fun to hear Joe Buck say, that one just went off into the corn. And many of you have probably seen that movie before. It's a great movie. You remember where you have the character Ray Kinsella. He's a a corn farmer played by Kevin Costner. And you have the players kind of emerging from the corn, which they did in that game, which was super cool. You can go back and look it up. They had Kevin Costner wandering around in the middle of the field, and all of a sudden the Yankees and the White Sox start coming out of the corn and take the field. And like your inner six-year-old is like, I'm not crying, you're crying. Just kind of, if you love baseball, it just kind of brought all the feels when you watched it. And many of you probably saw that movie, but you may have forgotten how the character Ray Kinsella created the field in the movie. He plowed under three acres of corn in order to be able to, to build, to build that, that ball field. And people thought he was crazy, and they stopped along the highway to watch him plow under his own crops and build a baseball field. And you can see the people taking pictures of it and going, he is crazy. He's going to lose his farm. Because you think he's, he's literally plowing under his own livelihood. And at the moment, people are looking around going, what is wrong with this guy? It seems so illogical. Now, we think about Ray Kinsella, and we think about Christianity, and you're like, what in the world do those have to do with each other? Many people today look at Christianity 
And it looks like Ray Kinsella plowing under his own corn, chasing some silly fantasy. It seems like such a waste of time when you could keep all of that time and money and effort for yourself, and you could also keep Sunday mornings open. Many people look at Christianity and they go, that's just like, just like plowing under your own field, chasing this fantasy. What are you doing? They ask, why, why give so much of your life and resources away to a Savior you've never actually met in person? Who would do that? It seems so weird. It seems like a fruitless endeavor when you only have so much life to live. But what if that was exactly what Jesus said was the secret to living a fruitful life? What if it actually was the joy in giving it away for the sake of more fruitfulness? What if that actually was the way to live? Would you want to find out a little bit more about it? The big question that we're going to look at this morning is how does Jesus free us up to give our lives away? How does Jesus, how does the gospel free us up to give our lives away? We're going to see two points. He shows us the freedom of self-forgetfulness by pointing to the hope of eternal fruitfulness. So we're going to see the freedom of self-forgetfulness, if you're a note-taking type of person. Point one, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Point two, the hope of eternal fruitfulness is where we're going. Okay, let's look at the first point, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. When we think about what's going on here in the text as our scene opens up, we're still around the time of the Passover feast in Jerusalem, and you think about the temple complex and the whole city would have been just buzzing with activity as busy pilgrims were coming in and, and everything was being flooded, as all these people from the outside were coming into the city for this great high feast. The city of Jerusalem would have been a really busy place. And in verse 20, we're told that some Greeks were in town for the feast. And these may have been Greek-speaking Jews, or they could have been Gentiles uh, who had come to the faith, Gentile God-fearers. We don't exactly know. All we know is they were some Greeks. And so in verse 21... They had obviously heard about Jesus, and they went up to the apostle Philip to find out about how to speak to him. And we're told that he's from this little fishing village of Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida, an interesting thing, an interesting point of contact that I had here was a lot of people didn't know the original site of Bethsaida. They kind of knew where it was, but it had never been found. Well, one of my seminary professors, Dr. John Currid, who's also a biblical archaeologist, went back and was surveying different topographical stuff and doing what archaeologists do best. Actually led a team over there and found out that actually this body of water that it was next to had actually receded over time. And so the, they, they figured that the fishing village, that people have been digging in the wrong place the whole time, kind of like an Indiana Jones movie. They're, in the, they're digging in the wrong place. So they, he, they went and moved uphill and they started excavating and finding fish hooks and finding fishnets. They found the fishing village of Bethsaida. They found it. It's a real place. And Dr. John Currid got to find it. I thought that was pretty cool. You might think that's boring, but you know, it's kind of neat when you're like, oh, these places actually exist in real space and time. And we're told that this guy is from there. And most scholars think that he spoke Greek, which is probably why these other folks sought him out. And you can imagine that everybody wanted to speak to Jesus after hearing so much about him. And you see that everybody was wanting a little piece of Jesus. I mean, they had heard that he'd raised a guy from the dead, and he was, you know, teaching this kind of new stuff that nobody had heard before. Everybody kind of wanted to go get a little piece of Jesus, and everybody was seeking him out. And so what happened is Philip and Andrew, we can best surmise, kind of served as like a buffer between the kind of eager group of people that wanted to get in touch with Jesus and Jesus himself. They kind of 
for lack of a better phrase, kind of screened the phone calls, for example. And so, in verse 22, we, we hear that Philip and Andrew believed that this must have been a pretty important meeting, and so they went and they found Jesus. And we actually don't know whether or not Jesus actually met with them because John focuses on Jesus' words about the significance of the moment. And so these two apostles go and they find Jesus, and now Jesus begins talking about the significance of the here and now. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now think, throughout the Gospel of John, we have heard Jesus say, or we have heard John narrate, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And now we hear the hour has come. For the first time we hear the hour has come. And again, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. We've talked about this before, that it is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Remember, we believe the Old Testament, somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, somebody's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament, someone's coming again. That there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so Jesus is referencing Daniel 9, which is the vision of the Ancient of Days. And here's what Ligonier said in a really helpful article. Um, He says, When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he emphasizes his heavenly origin. Moreover, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, we know that he is the King who will reign forevermore. So when you hear Son of Man, think kingship. Think the one who's going to rule. And so then you ask the question, well, what does the word hour refer to? It says, my hour has not yet come for the Son of Man. What's that hour referring to? Is it his exaltation? Is it his glorification? What particular aspect of it? What part of his ministry or part of of this whole salvation thing is it pointing to? What's that hour mean? Verse 24 tells us that Jesus was referring to what is known theologically as his humiliation. Look at verse 24. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so, again, the catechism is really, shorter catechism is helpful. We think about how do we define Christ's humiliation? What does that mean? Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. It asks the question, what is Christ's humiliation? And part of it says, he, uh, speaking of Jesus, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death on the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That's what we're talking about. So it's not his exaltation. This theologically is what is known as Christ's humiliation. And the the cross is included in that. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness and that Jesus was offered an option that would bypass the cross. What did Satan say? Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you all this stuff. You don't need to worry about that whole cross and the blood stuff. Like, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything that we need. And what we see is Jesus flatly refusing and actually speaking Scripture back to Satan. And I want you to take a moment, just for a second, and I want you to dwell upon all that Christ has done for you. Just sit there for a second. When offered the easy way out, he never took it. He chose the way of the cross because it was the only way to rescue and redeem those sheep whom the Father had given to him. It was the only way. 
The way of the cross was the only way. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. Take a moment and dwell on that. Don't pass over that. Every day, every verse that passes, we get closer to the cross in John's gospel. The tension's building. The cross is coming. And when given the option to take the easy way out, Jesus never took it. What grace, what mercy, what a Savior. Jesus is referred to as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And don't miss the constant references to Jesus being the true Passover Lamb as we approach the cross with each passing word in this gospel account. Jesus uses the illustration of a grain of wheat to describe the coming hour. Here's what R.C. Sproul said about that phrase, or about what Jesus says there in verse 24. He says, One grain plucked from the stalk, one seed of wheat, if it's put in a jar or placed on a shelf as a souvenir, is worthless. If anything is to come of that seed, any, anything to benefit anyone else, it has to fall into the earth and die. There has to be this death before a bearing of much fruit. Jesus is speaking about his own coming death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus knew that this was the way of the cross for him, but it's also the way that we're called to follow him as his disciples. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Philippians 2, 4-8, speaking of Christ's humiliation, says, Let each of you look not, only, look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you think about Christianity and it's, God, it's so focused on this cross and this blood. It seems so negative. It talks about sin all the time. I mean, what's the deal here? And we don't like this version of Christianity a lot of times because it sounds so negative. Why do we have to be negative all the time? But it's exactly the Christianity that we need because the sin in our hearts keeps us so preoccupied on ourselves all the time. We only think about ourselves. And we need this version of Christianity to snap us out of reality. The Christianity and, and Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people live. Jesus is not some self-help project to give you a checklist of ten ways to be a better person. You need a new right relationship with a holy, holy, holy God because your sin has left you under his wrath. And if that's true, which it is, then you need a Savior. And God himself, God the Father himself, and covenant with the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit, put this plan into play before you were a twinkle in your mama's eye to make a way for you to be brought into his kingdom by grace and by mercy. It's amazing when you think about it. We don't like that version. It sounds so negative, but that's the one we need because simply put, it focuses our, our attention on where it should be, which is Christ and the cross and not on ourselves. And what does this do? What happens when the focus is less upon ourselves and more upon Christ and all that He has done? What it does is it frees us up to serve others. It frees us up to give our lives away. There's freedom in gospel humility and self-forgetfulness. Here's what Tim Keller said. 
The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. That's what gospel humility is. Thinking of yourself less. Mark 10, 43-45, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You think about for a second this, how countercultural this is. Jesus is saying, if you want to live a fruitful life, you need to die to yourself. You need to be like that grain of wheat placed in the ground. You die to yourself. And you live unto Christ. And you think the world looks at that and says, that is absolutely crazy. The world around you is saying, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Life is short. Grab all you can while you can. you got to go get yours. That's what the culture is telling you. Go grab as much as you can before you, you die. But when compared to Christ and His glory, that way of living looks like a withered, unwatered houseplant compared to the fruitfulness and abundance of an eternity with Jesus Christ. When, when placed next to something more bigger and brighter and more beautiful, which is the flourishing kingdom of God and Christ at, Christ at its very center, what the world is, is begging you to go and throw your life into just looks like a withered old house plant when compared to the strength and richness of this. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things of life. I'm not sitting here haranguing you for that. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things of life, but there is something wrong when we take a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing. That's called idolatry. When we take a good thing of life and we make it the ultimate thing, whether it be money or prestige or comfort or grades or whatever it is, we take a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing, that's a problem, because in many ways we're bowing down and we're serving that. That is the king in our hearts. And the question this morning is, who's on the throne of your heart? What is on the throne of your heart? Is it your own comfort? Is it being accepted and loved by absolutely everyone? That's impossible, I can tell you that. Is it the amount of money that you have in your bank account? What is it? What is on the throne of your heart? What occupies and what leads your decisions around? If it's anything other than Jesus, it's an idol. And it needs to be repented of. Because it's only going to lead to death in the long run. Only Jesus and his kingdom offers eternal fruitfulness. It's right there in the text. It's promised right there. It's right there. And we're so quick to forget it. Who or what is on the throne of your heart this morning? In the Christian life, the way up is the way down. In the Christian life, the way up is the way down. Christ himself freely gave his life away so that we, undeserving as we are, could have real hope in this life and be set free to have true joy at the heart level. Why? Because our identity and our future are firmly united to and kept safe by our Lord Jesus Christ, who currently, he has never given up his throne, is the reigning king of glory. So it frees us up to give our lives away because our identity, our future, everything is wrapped up in Christ. And Christ is on the throne. And Christ says, no one will snatch you out of my hand. You're safe. You're loved. It's never going to go away. And don't you see how that changes the way we give our lives away? 
Instead of being so self-protective and I'm only thinking about myself, what we're able to do is go, you know what, what can the world do to me? I'm loved and kept secure in Christ forever because of what he's done. It's amazing when you think about it. And so we see the second point, quickly, more short, the hope of eternal fruitfulness. So we see the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Don't you see that when you stop looking at yourself all the time, it frees you up to go look at other people and give your life away? Because you don't really care what... I mean, you ever notice... Like, I always appreciate, let's say... You know, the, we're, like we play in, I play in a band, band dad company, right? And we make, we make fun of like dads that wear the, you know, the jean shorts, like the dad uniform. It's not cool at all. But the thing you appreciate about the dad uniform is you've, like the, you've got the guys that are going like, you know what, it's just kind of who I am. I'm just going to wear this, and I don't care what you think. <laughs> and then they're free to just kind of go live their lives. And you see this freedom of self-forgetfulness, this gospel humility that gets in, that we, we, we stop trying to scurry around trying to prove ourselves all the time. We're able to go, how can I love and serve you? What can I do for you? But now we see the hope of eternal fruitfulness. Did you notice the little promises there at the end of verses 24 and 25? Did you notice those little promises? Let's read those verses again, verse 24 and 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it does what? It bears much fruit. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it what? For eternal life. There's these little promises of fruitfulness and eternity that are there. Dying to self, focusing on others, giving freely of what we have, fixing our eyes on Christ and not the trinkets of the world. It's not just a bare asceticism with no hope. Asceticism is, you know, you beat yourself and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not just that. It's, it's not that without any hope. There's tons of hope attached to this. We're told that these things lead to fruitfulness. They lead to eternal life. Why? Here's what Ketty said. The Christian citizenship is in heaven. It's better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, already here and now. This puts our present life in its proper perspective. Christ is the Christian's life. Whether he lives or dies, and this means he, li- he lies, losing, lies loose to the things of this world, even though he loves every sunset and enjoys God's good gifts throughout his day. With every verse that passes in John's gospel, we're getting one verse closer to the cross. And as each day passes in this life, if you are in Christ, think about this, you are one day closer to heaven. Isn't that good? You're now one day closer to heaven than you were yesterday. It makes you want to lean into it. It reminds you again that your citizenship is in heaven. And so what does this do? This sets us free to give our lives away to love and serve others, to think, of other, to think of ourselves less, to be okay if we don't always get our way, to forgive others, to bury old hatchets, to love justice, to show mercy, to honor our parents, to live as good citizens. Basically, it frees us up to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It frees us up to do just that in lots of different ways. Why does it free us up to do that? Because Christ gave Himself up for us and He came to serve not be served. And when that gets into your heart, when that gospel gets into your heart, it changes the trajectory of your life and it changes your kind of the, the motivation center. Don't believe me? Let me tell you a story. I know y'all are tired. Let's hang with this. What does it look like when the gospel gets into your heart and it changes the absolute trajectory of your life? 
when you learn to hate your life in this world because something bigger, better, brighter, and more beautiful lies in front of you. Okay, if you forgot anything else I just talked about, hear this story. This is what it looks like. At one point, number 60, Jason Brown was one of the best centers in the NFL. At one point, he had a five-year, $37 million contract with the St. Louis Rams, being the center, snapping the ball. That's what he did. At one point, he decided it was all meaningless, and he just walked away from football. He said, my agent told me, you're making the biggest mistake of your life, said Brown. And I looked right back at him, and I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Jason Brown quit football to be a farmer even though he'd never farmed a day in his life. And when asked how he learned to do what he does now, Brown said, I just got on the internet and watched YouTube videos. The guy learned how to farm on YouTube. YouTube's amazing. Thanks to YouTube and some good advice from other farmers in Lewisburg, North Carolina, Jason finished harvesting his first five-acre plot of sweet potatoes in 2014. He said, when you see them pop out of the ground, man, it's the most beautiful thing you could ever see, said Brown. He said, life has never felt more successful. Not in man's standards, said Brown, but in God's eyes. And the the interviewer asked, but God cares about the NFL, right? There's people praying to him on the field all the time. (laughs) Brown laughed and he said, yeah, there's a lot of people praying out there, said Brown. But when I think about a life of greatness, I think about a life of service. You see, his plan for his farm, which he calls First Fruits Farm, it's still up and running. I went and looked at it last night. The plan for his farm is to donate the first fruits of every harvest to food pantries. Today it's all five acres, 100,000 pounds of sweet potatoes when this interview was done years ago. He's done even more since then. So on that particular day, he gave away five acres of sweet potatoes, 100,000 pounds pounds of sweet potatoes to help people in his own community not go hungry. It's eastern North Carolina, very poor area. One lady in town said, it's unusual for a grower to grow a crop just to give it away, said Rebecca Page, who organizes food collection for the needy, and that's just what Jason has done, and he's planning to do more next year. What does it look like when the gospel gets in your heart? What does it look like when we're able to say, okay, I'm going to die to myself and I'm going to live unto Christ? What does it mean for us to loosen our grip up on this life just a little bit for the glory of Christ? What's that look like? It looks like Jason pulling up sweet potatoes for the glory of God. Jesus said in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is a promise that Jesus made. And the question as we close is, is that your hope today? Is that your hope? Whoever loses his, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's a promise. Is that your hope? Is that what motivates you today? Christ in his glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, these hard words. We're thankful, Lord, that you didn't clean up Christianity. and We only hear the positive stuff. Lord, we need to hear the negative stuff. Lord, we need to be reminded that we think about ourselves way too often, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would break us of that. Lord, free us up to live a life of service. Free us up to realize, O Lord, that our future and our hope is secure. And so come what may in this life, it is... We are are firmly rooted and grounded in you, O Lord. 
and help us to give our lives away. Lord, help us to do the big stuff that you call us to do. And Lord, help us to even serve in the little stuff, whether it's serving here in the church on a team, serving, giving our lives away, helping out from time to time. Lord, help us to do that. And Lord, also put a vision in front of us, oh Lord, where we can help in big ways. Lord, we want to do what you want us to do. But Lord, we do pray that you would help us to think of ourselves less. Lord, help us to dwell upon your kingdom, dwell upon the richness of your majesty, just dwell upon all that you have done for us. It really is of grace and of mercy that we stand. And so, Lord, we stand in awe of you. And Father, we do pray that you would help us to hate our lives in this world. Not, that doesn't mean enjoy, not enjoying things, Lord. What it means is that that's not where our ultimate hope is found. Help us to find our ultimate hope in you, a hope in the kingdom, a hope in heaven with you. And Lord, may that change the way that we live in the here and now and help us to give our lives away for the glory of God and for the good of others. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.